This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 24, Revelations. And hello and welcome to all of our listeners. We are glad to have you with us again as we get further into the second season of Babylon 5 with the episode Revelations. It's like a whole new show. (laughs) It is. Funny that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have plenty to talk about as things get deeper, as we get to know our new character a little bit more. Uh, But we will be talking all about Revelations and what gets revealed and whether it actually resolves anything. (laughs) We will uh, find that out. Uh, To get started, what you need to know. Upon the destruction of a large Narn outpost in Quadrant 37, Ambassador Jakar went exploring because he knew the destruction couldn't have been at the hands of the other major races in the area. Captain John Sheridan recently took over command of Babylon 5 from Commander Jeffrey Sinclair. Most of the staff appears to have taken to the captain, but Security Chief Michael Garibaldi will need a bit more time to adjust as he's been in a coma after being shot in the back by a second-in-command. Delenn's been regenerating or something in a cocoon for a few weeks. Londo has been making deals with this Morden fellow who, at least, has a devilish smile. In this episode, Dr. Franklin has tried everything and asks Sheridan's permission to try the alien device he got from Dr. Rosen in The Quality of Mercy on Garibaldi. They share the risk of the procedure, and Garibaldi is healed enough to wake from a coma. He gets telepath Talia Winters to scan him, and is able to identify Jack as his assailant. President Clark demands that the prisoner and all the evidence be sent to Earth so he can personally investigate the death of his predecessor. Jakar has stirred up a hornet's nest in his explorations and returns with news, trying to warn the rest of the Council of the possible return of a devastating enemy from centuries before. Londo has been asked by Morden to keep him informed of activity out on an area of the edge of known space known as the Rim. When Jakar arranges for another Narn ship to verify his findings, Londo passes the word, and the evil space crabs are there to destroy the ship before it can report back. Sheridan's sister Liz comes to Babylon 5 to visit her big brother, now that he's not constantly moving around on an Earth Force ship. We learn of the death of Sheridan's wife, Anna, when the deep exploration ship she was on exploded while out on the rim. Liz shares Anna's last message to her, which helps Sheridan let go of some of the guilt he was feeling in the past two years. Those are the major points in Revelations. Um, Like I said before, I get the feeling, yes, it's aptly named because a lot of things get revealed, but things don't necessarily get resolved. What do you guys think? It's interesting that you say it like that, because I'm actually going to start with a very last note that I have written down on here. And that was uh, Stephen's exclamation after it all finished. And I will paraphrase because otherwise I will have to be bleeped. Um, (laughs) But but his response was, I say, laying the groundwork for stuff. He didn't say stuff. But uh, (laughs) but he... He also said that he was he was very impressed with this uh, this episode because there was just so much that was in it, so much happened, and mm-hmm. at the same time, it was clearly setting up so much stuff in the future. I mean, you could just see the glint in his eye about how excited he is that there's there are things that are coming, and now 
things are rolling and and he, he can see a little bit of the future. So I think, yes, Revel- like you said, Revelations is a good title because a bunch of stuff happened. A bunch of stuff got, you know, put together for us. But boy, there's so much more coming. And now you can start to see some of those shapes a mm-hmm. little bit in the distance. It's sort of like the anti-science importance in that sense, um, which was all science importance and not much story and revelation. And this one was revelations, you know, things things happen all over the place in this story, even as they're setting up the future. Definitely. Yeah, and it, 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 it is so much a, a stepping stone, it, it feels to me, um, a very wonderful, intricately woven stepping stone, because there is so much uh, going on in here plot wise and character wise that just make it such a great piece of television. Is this um, is this Chrysalis Part 3? You know, it kind of is. I really mm-hmm. do feel like it. You know, it's almost like it's not Chrysalis Part Three. It's like we had this is Chrysalis Part Two, and there was another thing in the middle. You know, <laughs> because because really, as great as Points of Departure is, it's a little bit of a departure from the the story that we kind of had going on because they had to take a little pause and establish this new character that we have and figure out where he fits into things to a certain extent. And then now we're back on on the roller coaster again and going. So I think this is Chrysalis Part 2, and we had an interlude in the middle. Hmm. And that fits with um, some things that Straczynski said on the Lurker's Guide uh, around that time, that um, having to adjust for the departure of Michael O'Hare and the departure of the character of Sinclair, that a lot of the stuff in this episode would have happened last episode in the original timeline. And some of the things that were addressed previously, it would have been shifted around and a little bit more evened out. Yeah, I think the timing actually works better, even when you take into account the fact that we've had a cast change. For example, Jakar's been gone for about a week in real time or in terms of when the episodes aired. We were all wondering what had happened to him, and as it turns out, he's with his Narn buddies in a fighter, and they're being chased by creepy-crawly space uh, crabs again. If that had been happening in that first episode of the first season, I think that would have been too soon. I like the fact that this has been stretched out enough. It feels like there's a little bit more weight. There's there's a broader universe happening. Yeah, the fact that we have to wait for it a little bit just makes it feel a little more realistic. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Somebody taking longer to figure something out maybe makes what he figures out have a little bit more heft. Indeed. And then, of course, there's the extra problem that he can't get any proof or um, get people to listen to him seriously about this. Um, You know, we have a a potential name, the darkness in the Book of Jaquan, that, you know, wide open interpretation of anything, but it certainly could fit our our evil spider crabs. But I like that it's starting to set Jakar up. I'm getting the feeling of a Cassandra, somebody who is aware of what's going on trying to get people to listen, and nobody's listening yet. You know, his line when he just comes back and he says, I'm too late, everything yeah. is too late, that really reminded me of Stephen's observation of of how Sinclair was at the end of the right. last season, where he was just kind of too late for everything, and there's just sort of a sense of defeatism uh, about him. I got kind of a little bit of that same, a whiff of that same thing from Jakar, because it's like he's, he's on to something and he knows it, and nobody's paying attention. Mm-hmm. 
So something else that we get revealed in uh, this episode is we get a lot more of Sinclair's, uh, sorry, we get a lot more of Sheridan's past. Does that work for you guys? Does it seem like it's a good thing to give insight into or does it fit? I feel like it was... I like it. It is good. It definitely had a little bit of the the smell of, you know, here's our guy. We're establishing him. Look, look, he's got he's got a background. He's a whole person. But it it didn't feel as clunky as it could have. I think it was it, it made sense because he had been traveling around, as you said, you know, for for years. And he's finally kind of settling down into one place because that's where he's got his assignment. So it completely makes sense that his sister would come and visit him. So I didn't feel like they went out of their way to make this happen. It was a natural thing. And and I, I really like getting a little bit more of his, his personality out of his, his background, his personal background. So, you know, now we know that he had this this tragic thing happen to his wife and he's he's trying to, to get over it. And I, I like seeing more of the character. We the, the the tragic background that we got from Sinclair was that he was missing a, a chunk of his life and there's a hole in his mind. And this is a, a different thing, but it's it's still a little bit extra little flavor and i like that i like it too but i will note that you said not as clunky as it could have been which is <laughs> not exactly the highest of endorsements there erica it's still yeah. it's still exposition heavy it, I, I, I will agree with that yeah um, it's, i think it's, they work it in better than they they have in the first season but it's still a lot it is um it's it's well played bruce Boxleitner mm-hmm. does a great job in this uh i think he hits just the right emotional notes in this, whereas we might have had wide-eyed acting uh, from Michael O'Hare or anything like that. Um, Box Leitner is an emotive actor, um, and Sheridan seems to have, in these first two episodes, a really good sense of when it's time to drop your guard and when it's time to keep it up. Think about last week when he is confiding his own misgivings to Ivanova. But when he's on the deck of CNC, he's all business. He's the the man in charge. In this episode, he's opening up to his sister about his loss and how he still feels. And it's not something that I really like the way that after he's had this first difficult conversation with his sister, what does he do since he can't sleep? He goes to med lab. He's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to save somebody. That I put that in my notes that, you know, I couldn't save Anna. I couldn't stop her death. But you know what? I can help Garibaldi. Yeah, I liked that too. Yeah. You know, I didn't even put that together, but I love it. I think that just makes him come together for me even more in this first episode with him. The other thing that I noticed kind of sort of related to that is when uh, Dr. Franklin first asks him, you know, brings it to him and says, I've got this this device. It's not technically, you know, mm-hmm. by the book, but I want to use it. Um, you know, is the, and then Sheridan says, is this his only chance? And he says, yeah, this is, this is it. And Sheridan's response is, well, I guess we don't have any other choice, which is kind of amazing to me because yeah, you do have another choice. It's to just let him die and not use this, you know, weird <laughs> alien tech, but he, he is compassionate and, you know, result oriented enough that he wants to to get something done. So he's willing to go off book a little bit just to to make that happen. And I, I kind of like that about him as a character right away here. Yeah. And I love that scene when he and Franklin negotiate who's going to operate the machine, who's going to and all that stuff. And and they're like two grown ups, you know, mm-hmm. the, 
Mm-hmm. Sheridan makes a good point. Then Franklin makes a good point. They work it out. And after Franklin makes his counterproposal, me first, Sheridan thinks for a moment and says, done. And they shake on it. It's a big manly moment here. <laughs> but yeah. but I, I really like seeing grown-ups act like grown-ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even as they stay in character, something, a couple of things with um, Stephen this episode, uh, since we're talking about this a little bit, in that opening scene when Sheridan gives him the okay that, yes, that he can use the machine, Stephen's face lights up just a little bit, like, I get to play with the toy. Um, <laughs> there's just a tiny bit of that excitement about exploring new things in there, even in the midst of this serious situation. And then when Sheridan comes in to tell him, you know, no, I'm going to help you with this, because Stephen was so focused on working the machine and helping Garibaldi, he, again, didn't take every single possibility into consideration. He was still just a little bit too sure of himself. You know, when Sheridan points out, well, what if it, you know, if what if you get the setting wrong and it works too fast and you pass out and there's no one here to help you? And, and you know, Stephen is like, oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I, you know, maybe you've got a point. So I like that, you know, even though it's not a focus of the scenes or the episode, we're still getting those consistent character bits. I'm just sitting over here smiling really big. I just (laughs) love this episode. And everything that we have pointed out so far is just, I don't know, it seems like all of these scenes really sparkle in a way that we didn't always get in all of the the episodes in in season one. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, and I'm not going to chalk all of that up to Bruce Broxleitner joining the cast, but I do think that that his scenes are, are ones that do sort of sparkle a little bit extra. Well, uh, to quote your redacted version of what uh, your husband said uh, after watching this, you know, things really are happening. I mean, the arc is intensifying. And I think that gives JMS and everybody involved with the show more of a sense of direction. It's not like they're making a Star Trek-like show on half the budget anymore. I feel like now they're making Babylon 5. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's, it's you know, it's finally starting to roll downhill and everybody has hopped aboard. Yeah, and to continue talking about some of the advances and things that get moved on, of course, we've got uh, with Garibaldi awake again. He, you know, is able to get Talia to help him dig into his memories and Wait, identify- wait, wait, Talia? Talia, who's that? <laughs> yeah, you should. Yeah, well, she's I mean, back. Well, like, you know, Stephen seeing her name in the credits was just like, what? She's still here. And then she wasn't in last week's. And then she appears. She walks in the room and she, he's like, what the heck? He didn't say heck. What the heck is she doing here? He was just like, she's relevant to this plot. Mm-hmm. And then she disappears again so fast that I, I he didn't say anything afterwards. But I was kind of like, well, maybe he has a point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in this plot line, uh, of course, we have the revelation. Uh, with Garibaldi discovering that it's uh, Jack. We finally have a name for Garibaldi's second-in-command. He's not just the aide anymore, like he is in the credits. But then we have the immediately more questions, because uh, not only does he not actually tell Garibaldi what's going on, other than it's not home guard, and he gives that very telltale salute to connect. And just in case we'd forgotten, Garibaldi puts it together for us at the end that uh, Bester, the psychop, had made the same salute. 
And conveniently enough, as the president demands that everything gets sent back to Earth so he can deal with it personally, and then it disappears. Mm-hmm. That was another a bit, the uh, the salute thing that really, really excited Stephen and me now that I have started watching The Prisoner, because uh-huh. that is straight out of The Prisoner, which JMS was, of course, a fan of, um, which is how it ended up in there in the first place. But Stephen was, and I was too, I admit, I had kind of forgotten how that plot line played out. So Stephen said afterwards that he was very surprised that it wrapped up so quickly that he really thought they were going to stretch out the who is the traitor who shot him in the back thing um, over the course of more episodes and Mm -hmm. honestly so did I because I didn't remember how it how it ended and it was it was surprising to me that was one of the things that made this episode feel like it cooked so much was like boom you know we've got him and and he gets nabbed right away but then of course they leave that huge dangling plot thread of of him mysteriously disappearing along with all the evidence why didn't they make copies (laughs) (laughs) I know yeah, because to, if they made copies, then you don't have a show anymore. Well, but JMS, actually, I noticed this, too, when I was checking the Lurker's Guide. He he pointed out, well, yes, they had copies, but what good are copies without the man? I mean, it's all circumstantial mm-hmm. without him. That's so. true. And, you know, the one one of the few things about this episode that I'm not super fond of is when Jack, now that we know his name, is standing in the doorway of MedLab and Garibaldi's trying to remember who yeah. shot him. And, and then he ends up saying, you know, I, I couldn't remember. He shot me from behind. Jack is like moving his hand down to his PPG. Like, he, what is he going to do? Shoot everybody in the room and then run away? I mean, because yeah. then he'd be caught anyway. So that that didn't make any sense to me as a uh, as a character move but you yeah. know i it yeah but i can still sort of see it happening as sort of a reflex or a you panic know, yeah you know uh, he fully expected garibaldi to die garibaldi did not die so he's got to sit there watching and hoping that he won't wake up and then when he does wake up hoping that garibaldi's not going to remember him and he's there at that key point and he doesn't know what Garibaldi's going to say, what Garibaldi might have otherwise come up with that he didn't share with Jack during the investigation. So I can sort of see that reflex happening. Okay. You've, you've talked me down a little bit. <laughs> you, I, I, I am in the presence of a master of hand wavium. I can only <laughs> develop this technique through osmosis. <laughs> Oh, okay. One more bit about that plot thread. I don't know about you guys, but I, I really wanted to reach into the screen and just like punch a fist in Clark's nose. Um, the actor does a very good job of playing this weasley little politician. I don't think the actor did a good job at all. Well, <laughs> I think that's... In my notes, I just... I mean, Stephen called him a weenie. Um, so right. So I, I guess maybe that's right. But I just didn't think the performance was very good. I did not believe that this guy was elected vice president of, you know, the the local book club, much less the the entire planet Earth. I just... I <laughs> feel Erica, like that was if a, they're, if a they're casting... Still- if they're Captain's. still, yeah, maybe. But if they're still running as a team, then people were voting for Santiago and, you know, not I thinking guess. so much about Clark. Right. He was he was the number two. And I am not speaking about any elected official that I currently or previously directly worked with. However, there are a <laughs> lot of elected officials out there who are not as impressive as one would think that an elected official would have to have been to have gotten there. Um 
Clark, in these two appearances that he's had on the show, strikes me as, if we're talking about potential conspiracies here, sometimes it's people behind the scenes who are pulling the strings, and sometimes the people who are the public faces aren't all that. And I think that in these two episodes, I get the sense that perhaps Clark is one of these types, um, who's who's elevated into a position that he may not have been prepared for. Um, he certainly ran as a vice president, not as a president. Um, so, so yeah, weenie. I think that's actually quite believable. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So there. Yeah, this one, this one you're not convincing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can't all be winners. <laughs> well. Um, so a couple other things to touch on um, in the theme of the revelations is, of course, we finally get our revelation of Delenn, that she gets to go through a phase where she's like this, you know, cracked stone creature for a little bit until it apparently all peels off. Um, and she and she reveals her new look. And now she has hair. How does that sort of thing work? I mean, we there's not much to it. You know, we, we just get the sense of the transformation, that it was difficult, that it was painful, that she had no idea exactly how this was going to work. And We've then we, never heard her this vulnerable before in the show. Right. And then we get the reveal at the end um, where she pulls off her hood and, and Sheridan um, is just like, you know, jaw dropping. Wow. Yeah. I, so. I love the fact that they give this to us in two steps because I still remember the very first time that I watched this and when her hand comes out and it is all rocky and scaly, I was just like, oh my God, what happened? And mm-hmm. and at that point I knew what was coming, but I was still completely freaked out because I just, I, it was, I just thought that was incredibly effective. Um, and, and it was just, I got the same kind of tingles watching it again. And, and Chip, you're right, seeing her be that vulnerable. And, and I love that they call Dr. Franklin in, and he's the one that, you know, kind of helps mm-hmm. her through it. And then you get the sweet reveal at the end. And I think it was kind of hokey that she comes in with this, you know, with the hood. But I can totally see a Minbari with their sort of culture of, of, it's not exactly theatrical, but there's, you know, lots of ritual involved. And yeah, yes. Ceremony. Exactly. State, yeah, and stateliness. And so she comes in and then, you know, does yeah. the reveal at the end. And man, she just looks, she's, I mean, the part of it is the lighting, but she she's glowing. She just looks gorgeous. And I, I just love it. I, I think that that's a, a wonderful moment. And it makes me, it makes me just, like I said, kind of tingly thinking about it all over, happening all over again, because, you know, now that she's going somewhere from here, what does this all mean? It's just, it's exciting. It's another laying the groundwork sort of moment. And mm-hmm. something I really loved about uh, that reveal moment, too, that I noticed this time that I'm not sure I noticed before, how careful Mira Furlan was to echo some of the mannerisms that Delenn has developed, the tilt of her head, the little bow, just to remind you that this is still Delenn. She looks different, yes, but, you know, this This is still the same act, the same character. Yep, I've got nothing to add to that other than um, she looks great. It's interesting that Sheridan has the reaction that he does, but Sheridan's dealt with Mimbari for many, many years. Every Any of the characters that have uh, dealt with Mimbari, you know, they've never seen a excuse me, a a hairy Minbari before. That sounds like a really (laughs) bad drink. Um, I do not want to order one of those. No, no, no. Um, But uh, the other cast 
look mm-hmm. similarly shocked. Uh, Jakar, Londo, you know, every everybody else in the room is not expecting this and don't really know what this means. And at this moment, we as audience members don't know either. At the moment, it could just be cosmetic. But notice that she says that she did this with her government's approval. And yes. what did the Grey Council guy say last week? <laughs> she t- did it already. Yeah. She didn't know, listen to her, us. We told her prophecy would attend to itself. And yet, you know, she goes and does it anyway. I was like, mm-hmm. <gasps> you're lying. Sort of. Mm-hmm. The other sort of big point I wanted to touch on is, of course, Londo and, and Morden back again with their continued uh, relationship. What did you guys see before I throw my thoughts out there? I like that they're sort of negotiating the terms of their relationship. We had that moment in Chrysalis when Londo was sort of shocked that Morden's associates could do what they did. Um, and now the the renegotiation, the, the Londo trying to understand what's going on, we get a restatement, which is helpful because it's the beginning of a season and pe- new people keep tuning in. Hey, wh- what's Bruce Boxleitner doing these days? Well, I guess we'd better find out. Um, Londo still doesn't ask more than the, um, you know, we know that Morden says we may ask for a favor from time to time. I still feel like at this point in the story, Londo should be asking what they really want from him, what the price is really going to be for helping them out. I think he's being a little too passive here at this point, but... I don't don't know. I feel like, I think he, my impression was that he already feels like he's gone a little too far Mm -hmm. to, to look this gift horse in the mouth too much. He was clearly blown away by the fact that they were able to take care of this and do it. And it's it's been kind of weighing on his mind, I think, ever since. And now he's I think he, he struck me as being worried about other people finding out that it was actually him, like, you know, coming back to him um, that or coming back to the Narn, that it was that it was him. And Morden knows that. And I, I just don't I don't know. I mean, and the look on his face when. uh when he said something about, you know, eliminating the entire Narn homeworld and, and Morden being like, let's not get ahead of ourselves or whatever he said. Like, just the the way that, that Peter Jurisic, he's smiling, Lando's smiling, and then, like, his face just sort of suddenly falls. Like, mm-hmm. are you serious, dude? I, I think he's getting an idea that, that this is bigger than he is, and he's worried. And I can understand him not wanting to push the envelope too far at this point. Every every scene after that when he's talking to Morden, he seemed much more I don't want to say cowed, but hesitant a little bit a bit in his the way he was carrying himself with uh with Mr. Space Mob as yes. Stephen put it. Yeah, I totally agree. I noticed this time that uh the opening shot of that as Lado's waiting in the garden area and sitting on the bench, he's fidgeting. He is totally, completely fidgeting, moving around. He can't settle. Um, and again, uh, as you said, he, he's half of him is worried that someone's going to find out that he was behind this, that that he that it was through his request that the quadrant 37 got completely destroyed. And again, all of this worry and Morden very masterfully, you know, he, he had asked for a favor. And well, his first favor is real easy. If you hear stuff about the rim, would you tell us? 
And, <laughs> you know, Londo is like, okay, well, that's not too bad. Although I, in the council chamber, when Jakar talks about sending the, the Narn ship over, I, I get the feeling that Londo just sort of sits there for a minute and debates, okay, I think this is what they want. Do I give it to them? And well, yes, eventually he does. But yeah, I agree with the, he's in a, he's realizing that he may be in over his head and he doesn't know how to get out. Mm-hmm. I know. And even, you know, you say it's, it sounds like such a small favor. And I was thinking that too, watching this, like all he has to do is give them information. That's not really that big of a deal. Phew, Londo's dodged a bullet. And then the information that he gives them leads to the death of all of these Narns. And I was like, oh, I guess maybe it wasn't such a small favor after all. Yeep. Mm-hmm. Can we think of anything else that we want to touch on before we get into spoiler space? Uh, the only things I had noted uh, beyond what we've already talked about was, you know, yay, Lou Welch is back. One of our recurring characters. Uh, we leading. like Lou. We like Lou. Yeah, yes. I like Lou. However, he has one of the worst lines ever in in this episode. And make my friggin' or make my fraggin' solar year. <laughs> oh, Lou. <laughs> Stephen uh. was Stephen was incensed by that line because he thought it was so bad. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a bad it's a bad line. But uh, mm-hmm. aside from that, we like Lou. We like Lou's uh, blue collar, gritty spirit. And when the Security guys gang up on Jack because they know that Jack flipped on their boss. You can tell the extras and uh, Lou, they are all really, really mad. And Mm -hmm. they would be happy to take Jack out right then and there. um, If they were allowed to. If they were allowed to. Erica, you've said before that you've known people in law enforcement Maybe my experience is colored more by pop culture and all that stuff, but the security forces on Babylon 5 feel like cops to me. They feel tough. They feel not dirty, but rough. They um, mm-hmm. sort of a real kind of thing. And I was wondering if they if they have any kind of verisimilitude for you. Yes, I think so. They do. They, I mean, because the thing is, they feel like they feel like people. Sometimes when you see police officers in TV shows, they are not quite caricatures of police officers, but they're just sort of these, you know, upstanding square jawed fellows who are, you know, doing the right thing all the time. And not that these guys aren't doing the right thing, but they are, you know, it comes, and I hate to keep going back to this well, but our discussion way back when about some of the differences between Star Trek and Babylon 5, Star Trek is such a clean future mm-hmm. and Babylon 5 is is grittier and dirtier. I feel like um, the security forces on Babylon 5 are, are similar. Like they are appropriately realistic, down to earth, blue collar, like just getting the job done um, as compared to some of their counterparts on more... Um, shiny shows i guess might be the way to no, say it. So, no yeah. i think i think you're right i think on most star trek shows there is no discernible difference between the security uh starfleet officers and the other officers maybe they worked out a slight bit more <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whereas these guys you know they're they they are part of the team you know they remind me of you know more of the cops in something like life on mars than than in some show that doesn't really revolve around because you know babylon 5 does not revolve around any one particular character or group of characters too much it certainly doesn't revolve around garibaldi's you know his forces um so I, i like the fact that when they do appear as in this episode that they feel real 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one other thing that I'd like to mention about this episode that I think really is new to Babylon 5, and that's the fact that we have significant portions of the story happening away from Babylon 5. We have Jakar and his expedition um, at the beginning of the episode, and then we have the Narn ship uh, that is exploring or wants to explore but does not get the chance to explore the uh, planet that Jakar reveals as uh, something called Zahadum. Those are things that are happening away from Babylon 5 that we, the viewer, see without any intermediaries on Babylon 5, and that just opens this story up. It's not just about this 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal. It's about the universe in which this space station exists in. So it's a. Yeah. And I think the canvas is widening. Yeah. And I think that's echoed as well with the events on the station uh, with um, Sheridan and his sister discussing the fact that his wife was on a deep space expedition. They were going to, you know, take two weeks and go as far as they could and check out this place where some some supposed ancient civilization had been. And. Of course, the issue with um, dealing with Clark back home. So, yeah, the as you said, everything's getting bigger. Everything's getting wider, um, yeah. including characters. One last thing that occurred to me was with Jakar, that we're seeing more of the spiritual religious thinking side of Jakar that we only got bits of in season one. Uh, there's the moment when, you know, his two fighters turn around to uh, stall the fighters so he can get to the jump gate. And even though he's flying like crazy to a jump gate and he's still in danger, he does pause and pray to Jaquan that his warriors will, the names will be remembered. When he's back, um, he has that scene with Natoth where he's reciting the um, the Yates poem and talking about, you know, even, you know, the earthers might understand what we're about to deal with. So I yeah. really liked that. And yeah. speaking of Natoth. I was yes, wondering when we were going we, to get to that. We, yes, viewers, you are not crazy. That is a different actress under the makeup. Yeah, that's another thing where I would love to tell you exactly what it was that Steven said about it when she came on. But uh, let's see. He said, who the fudge is that? <laughs> he was he was not happy. Uh, he felt like she seemed more kind of meek and less less strong in the way that she was dealing with Jakar. He's, He's not, not wrong. wrong. I completely agree. I just, it seemed very strange to me. I mean, I I don't know anything about the behind the scenes, but, you know, when you've got somebody in that much makeup, yeah, I guess it's not that big of a deal to recast. But if you're going to do that, make sure that the person is getting the memo on how the character acted in the first place so that they can carry that on. You're not becoming, you know, this isn't the doctor and Doctor Who regenerating into a different personality. There should be some continuity of character and it seems like there's not. And actually, that's more of uh, Lurker's Guide Wisdom that JMS shared at the time. Julie Caitlin Brown, who played Natoth in the first season, wanted to pursue other roles. And so when they offered, you know, everybody the salary they had planned that they could afford to resign, she decided to turn it down. JMS at first thought about turning it into, you know, something of an inside joke and have Natoth like disappear or be killed the way Kodath just sort of disappeared early in season one. Another airlock accident. Right. Um, And then he decided, no, that's going to be too silly. Uh, And we really kind of need Natoth. We need the character to know what's going on. And they wound up casting Mary Kay Adams. And unfortunately, and I guess we'll see as we continue to rewatch, the actress came in 
wanting to reinvent the character somewhat. And like you, the minute she spoke, I mean, that first death glare, just not answering Londo, that worked for me. But then the minute she spoke with such a soft, you know, her voice was higher and softer and nowhere near as strong. And I'm just like, oh, man, that's not in the top. I didn't realize that she had wanted to reinvent the character. And that makes me angry because mm-hmm. that's... I don't know that it's quite that. I think that, and again, we're all just sort of going over to midwinter.com slash lurk, y'all. Uh, the <laughs> Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5 is a very important resource. Just be careful of the spoilers. But the impression that I got from JMS's notes was that when Mary Kay Adams came in to read for the part, that she came across as much more Julie Caitlin Brown-like than the early execution seems to indicate. Gotcha. So so we've seen in Babylon 5 that characters can be replaced or recast. So Mm -hmm. just just think for a moment there that one option that was available to J. Michael Straczynski would have been to... Instead of bringing in Bruce Boxleitner in as Sheridan, perhaps he could have gone with another actor who superficially resembled Michael O'Hare to continue the Sinclair role. Just food for thought. Um, oh, you just blew my mind. <laughs> so, I mean, wow. recap. So, so what does a showrunner do when he or she is doing a serialized show and things happen with actors and actresses and all that stuff? Do you recast or do you create new characters? It's a tough little puzzle. And I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that we'll see these sorts of decisions being made again from time to time in Babylon 5, as you would with any TV show. Yes. Speaking of of characters that were not recast, but replaced, I would love to finish things off with just a couple more things that I noticed about Sheridan uh, Mm -hmm. as the the new lead guy. I really like how at the end when, you know, they had arrested Jack for, for shooting Garibaldi, I liked how he hesitated, how Sheridan hesitated about sending Jack back to Earth. He didn't want to do that. Right. And I feel like that is the reaction that I would have expected from Sinclair. And I really liked that Sheridan had the same sort of gut reaction. He just wanted to take care of it there, you know, keep it in-house. And, uh, and of course, you know, he does what he's told because he's a, a good officer, but... I appreciated that. It made me feel good about him as as our new captain, because uh, that's the kind of reaction I'm used to seeing from the commander of Babylon 5. Especially when there are conspiracies all over the place and you're not sure about the new guy. Oh, 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 that's right. We didn't mention uh, Garibaldi's line. I don't know you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Garibaldi breaks my heart a little bit too because when he first, you know, opens his eyes, he's like, "I got to see the commander." Yeah. No, his first line is great. What's up, Doc? You know, That's his, true. His passion for old cartoons, and That's and it true. goes downhill from there as they let him know all of these things that have happened. I know. I brought my hands up to my mouth and went <gasps> as soon as he said, "I, I got to see the commander," because I was like, "No, you can't. He's yeah. gone." Oh, that was rough. But the other thing I noticed about Sheridan was that he drinks either vodka or gin, can't tell, clear liquid, mm-hmm. whereas his uh, sister drinks either, you know, whiskey or bourbon or something like that. I just, mm-hmm. I liked, I liked this nice touch that they each had their own thing that they were drinking. It wasn't like he was just pouring a little yeah. bit of something for, for both of them. Just little yeah. touches like that. I love about that. Yeah. Show. Although they need to be a little more careful about when the glass fills. There's a bit of a continuity yes. error in there when suddenly Sheridan has a full glass again. Glasses and cigarettes are always tough things in, uh, yeah. in continuity land. Okay. 
Can we think of anything else before we jump? No, I'm ready to jump. My one one last thing is just to say yay for the direction on this one. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was particularly good. It was most of the time I didn't notice stuff, which is a good thing. But that slow zoom into Jakar as he is describing the darkness gathering its forces mm-hmm. is masterful. It mm-hmm. intensified things and was just lovely. So bravo. Agreed. Well, then this will be the time for our new viewers to jump ship and turn off the podcast until such time as they have seen enough that they aren't going to spoil themselves. Which is every last episode. Unfortunately. Yep. In the meantime, your homework for next episode is The Geometry of Shadows. That is the next thing to watch. Um, As always, please come visit us on our website, b5audioguide.com, where we have our chat threads neatly separated into spoiler and non-spoiler territory so everybody can have fun talking. And as always, we are on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. And with that, let's jump through a gate. Welcome back, and now we get to talk about all the things that Revelations does reveal as far as the rest of the series. So many long-reaching things that get started here, so there'll be quite a bit to chew on for this uh, this half of the podcast. So one of the things that uh, listeners will not have heard, because it will have been expertly edited out, was that in the first run-up of the podcast, I talked about... Jakar and his Narn buddies encountering shadow ships. And yes, I called them shadow ships, but they've not been called that yet, have nope. they? <laughs> nope. Little little cute sparkly shadow ships. I'd yeah, forgotten how cute those things were. Did I imagine it or did they kind of scream a little bit as they got shot? I don't know yeah. if they screamed, but they sort of uh, writhed a bit. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, well, I think the one that he rammed head on, I think there was a scream in there. Okay, because that was, you know, something that I remember from the bigger shadow ships later on. Being powered. Like, wow, did they, yeah. Did they yeah. have that in there this early on? That's a really nice touch mm-hmm. from a production standpoint. Yeah, so we, we get a bigger look at our ships, and we f- first time that we hear the name Zahadoom. Yeah, the first time, and it is such a casual name drop, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I it, think this show excels at that. You know, you get a like Jack being just around in the background, and suddenly it turns out he's the traitor, Zahadoom. It's just a planet, guys. No big deal. Yep. Yeah. And now here's a thing that you might consider a little too coincidental, possibly a necessity, given the fact that we're introducing a new character who has to have a personal connection to the Shadow War, but. This is the episode that introduces Zahadoom, and later on we'll find out that that happens to be the very world that Anna Sheridan went to visit. On the same ship as Morden. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not a coincidence because, and maybe I can't remember exactly how things play out later on as far as what we discover about how Sheridan got the gig, but... Clark is to some extent being sort of controlled by the shadows or working with them or something. And perhaps the fact that Anna Sheridan is one of the people that they have taken over is another reason to put Captain Sheridan in Mm. command of Babylon 5 because they know they've got an ace in their back pocket. If it ever comes down to it, they can manipulate him through her. I don't, this is, and again, this is my honest impression, same as you just trying to remember. My impression was that they discovered after Sheridan attacks Morden because Morden turns up alive, well, where the hell is Anna? That's when they realize who they've got and bring her back. That's my impression, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see I, as it plays out. 
I am frantically scanning the Lurker's Guide for the <laughs> episode for the uh, novel The Shadow Within, which was written by Gene Cavellos, and it is the backstory of the Icarus Expedition. And oh, what a name! Yeah, and <laughs> what a name for that ship. Yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> I'm thinking that there is a reason why the Icarus went out that way, ah. but I can't Beyond recall what that is. I'm going rumors to have to do... of a abandoned civil of an ancient civilization. Yeah, so I'm going to have to do a little bit of research on that. But I think that you're right, Erica. It's not just a coincidence. Uh, I, I guess the coincidence would be that Sheridan's wife happened to be on that ship. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. uh, the Shadow Within is the story of the the Icarus expedition, and JMS has said it is like ninety percent canon. So it and the frequently mentioned book about Sinclair are the two old school uh, Babylon Five novels that are worth reading if you want more backstory. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Anna Sheridan, Stephen was wishing that she was played by Kate Jackson from Scarecrow and Mrs. <laughs> King. <laughs> It's like, that would have been awesome. And I didn't want to tell him, well, she's not going to be continued to be played by whoever this actress right, is. Right, that they, when they fair. wound up hiring Bruce Boxleitner's wife, Melissa Gilbert, yep. to, yeah. to play the role. Better. Seriously, yes. this I was wish... not a good performance uh, by Beth Toussaint. Um, I did not buy her as Sheridan's wife. And at one point, JMS had talked about trying to digitally re-edit this episode, put in Melissa Gilbert in place of Beth to Saint. And clearly, they didn't have the money or time or interest in really doing that. But I kind of wish they had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She kind of struck me as like a a welfare Linda Hamilton. Like, she was (laughs) almost, but not quite there. Yeah. Erica, you mentioned before spoiler space. Uh, how Sheridan reacted to Clark telling him to send Jack and all the evidence back to Earth. What I noticed is Sheridan not only reacted badly to that, but he actually turned away so he could hide his expression from Clark. And I think this is our first clue to the fact that Sheridan is actually part of the group of military officers that are sensing some conspiracy is forming and are trying to figure out who's on whose side and what to do when we learn that Sheridan was sent there precisely to sort out where Ivanova and Garibaldi and the senior staff on Babylon 5 stood. I think this is the first sign of that. I think you're exactly right. And I kind of just, I sort of pointed it out in the non-spoiler territory mm-hmm. um, because I, I genuinely did like it that he was yeah. reacting the same way as, as I expected Sinclair to. But I also kind of just wanted to put a lampshade on that a little yeah. bit so that so that when it's revealed later, the people who are, are listening and watching for the first time will kind of be like, oh yeah, you know, they'll have mm-hmm. it in their memory a little bit more. Same thing with uh, with the uh, the why don't you eliminate the entire Narn homeworld home while yeah. you're at it line, which I remembered, you know, word for word exactly. But I wasn't going to say it quite perfectly because I didn't want to put that big of a lampshade on top of that You are so devious. (laughs) This is what I do. (laughs) Yeah. And something as far as Londo's story in this episode is, I I think this is Londo's second chance um, later on in Point of No Return when he asks the widow of the emperor, who is another Centauri prophetess, to, to come and see for him. And she basically tells him, you know, you've had five chances to escape this destiny, and you've already blown two, dude. And I think the first one was continuing to talk to Morden and <laughs> leading to the initial encounter. And I think this is problem number two, essentially when he agrees to pass information. I think that is number two of what's going to be his very tragic arc. 
poor Londo. <laughs> he had it I coming. I know, and it's, I had forgotten that he <laughs> starts catching on to things this early. Like I said before the jump gate, mm-hmm. his, his reaction that he, he's already starting to realize that he's in over his head. I had forgotten that he... He puts puts that sort of vibe off so early because, like you say, he does have so many. There's there's so many more interactions between him and Morden and places where he could kind of go in different directions. And he's just he just keeps putting his foot deeper and deeper in. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't think Jack himself ever shows up again, there's the continuation of uh, the fact that the psychor that something's wrong, something's up um, is hinted at. Um, Going all the way back to the Universe Today newspaper yeah. that had the headline in it of Psychor controversy over endorsing um, oh, yeah, or over making mm-hmm. a m- making a presidential endorsement. That's right. Uh, and and <laughs> so I don't think it was ever actually mentioned in a season one episode at all, just that one headline there. And then Garibaldi Brings just it up, yeah. Brings it up, brings it up. And I just talk about planning stuff. I love it. I, I love it. I love it. Go back. Uh, if you're a new viewer, go back and see. Well, no, you can't. If you find try to find some screen caps online, you'll uh, basically get spoiled. Take your D- season one DVD and try <laughs> to screen cap that episode where the newspaper is. Or, and... or check the Tumblr because I can probably find a screen cap on Tumblr. There that you go. There you go. That. Perfect. There's okay. there's gold in there. There's gold. And why yes. am I telling people? Why am I yeah. telling people? Yeah, who yeah, yeah. Your newbies aren't supposed to be listening anymore. <laughs> well, some of them are. We I know. know. We know. See you. Well. Hi, Stephanie. <laughs> so, speaking of people who never get seen again, Liz never gets mentioned again. We're going to meet Sheridan's dad. Um, his mother gets mentioned numerous times, but if I remember correctly. There's no mention of any siblings of any kind later on. Absolutely correct. So that's really irritating. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's another one of the where are they now characters like Leanna Kimmer in um, in, Mm -hmm. the first season. Yeah. 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 And it's really annoying because that's a perfect place to throw in a touch of continuity. You know, one line that your sister is safe on Io or something, you know, that's all it would have taken. But but they didn't do it. Dropped ball. Yeah. Well, is it a drop ball or is it just economy? It's a drop ball. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you asked. <Yeah. laughs> asked and answered. Exactly. One other thing that I had in my notes is um, the, as when we mentioned it briefly in the uh, pre-spoiler section, uh, Sheridan's reaction to Delenn. Um, you know, first yeah. he's like, that, let's, first let's... he's like real courteous, you know, when, when the Lanier comes in and asks, can she come? And Sheridan is like, oh, absolutely. Of course. Yes, please. He, he's like such a gentleman about that. Um, that's kind of interesting comparison to what he's had to deal with, with the, um, with the other Membari, with the military Membari in the last episode. And then she comes in and, you know, takes off the hood and reveals herself. And he is just like, oh my God. I'm going to marry her. (laughs) (laughs) It really feels like that's that first connection. I mean, especially coming on the heels of, you know, having worked out most of his, um, if I remember correctly, has he seen the video of Anna by that time in the episode? 
No, because he was telling Liz about all about everything okay, that had happened. You're right. Day. You're right. So, so and, and he and he winds up. You're right. With, yeah, and, yeah. and he and he leads off with talking about Delin. Then he mentions the president and everything else. But so yes. Okay, so, you're yeah. right. I am corrected. But still, the fact that he's been talking to his sister, and you know she's been trying to help him finally work through this. I still think there's a process in there, although it, it, it's not complete at this time. I still think I still think the point is somewhat valid. Yeah, I think to me, I'm, I'm, I think Sheridan is just, especially the beginning here, as a character coming off as somebody who is very sort of excited and eager to to learn and see and try new things. His reaction to to um, Dr. Franklin and the machine and wanting to just hop on that right away, like he just he seemed. I think part of it was he was eager to to save somebody when he you know he knew he couldn't in the past, but. But he he did just have sort of that twinkle in his eye, like, oh, I'm excited to to see the new thing. You know, Franklin mm-hmm. wanted to play with a new toy. I think Sheridan did as well. And hey, uh, I hey, think- hey, 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 careful there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Speaking of which, that was something I was going to mention. Uh, Franklin's his scanner. I'm sorry. That 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 wavy that that magic oh, wand yeah. he picks up to start waving around her. It's like, oh, dear God. <laughs> oh, cheesy. But I think I think Star I think Trek Sheridan's- wins that one. Sheridan's reaction when um, when Lanier asks if he can bring Delenn in, it's I think he's he's not just polite and courteous. I think he's eager. He mm-hmm. is excited yeah. to meet her because he saw that cocoon. He knew yeah. that she was inside it and he wants to find out what is what is next. So I think part of his fascination with her at the beginning is simply the fascination of not understanding it it's being something that's brand new and that's exciting to him mm-hmm. so he sees her and his jaw is you know basically on the floor in part because she is beautiful and female but also in part because he's never seen anyone like that before this is something that's completely new and mm-hmm. i think that that is just as good a you know incipient bit of attraction as anything else to to draw him to her and and spark the uh, the romance that follows yeah well, I ship them so hard. So I'm, yeah, I'm just very, very happy to see, you know, his his amazement and and the way she appreciates it too. You know, she very deliberately, you know, bows to him again. You know, she she's with that. There's the, I think there's this tiniest smirk in the corner of her mouth a bit that she has made that impression on him. Mm-hmm. So, well, I love it. Well, keep in mind, she's seen him before, in the beginning. Yeah, that's true. She, he shouted at her, I know what's in uh, Ducat's secret place, you know, that yep. that whole that whole bit there. So she actually does know him slightly better than he knows than he her. Knows her. Um, one last thing that I'd like to toss out is um, the boy, they resolved that uh, Jack thing quickly thing that uh, Stephen told you, Erica. Mm-hmm. I'm uh-uh. I'm going I'm going back to the uh, I'm going back to the lurker's guide where it is revealed that. If there hadn't been cast changes after the gathering, Laurel Takashima would have been the mole, would have been the one to shoot Garibaldi in the back. And I'm quoting directly from the Lurker's Guide here. Takashima would have been revealed as having been in on the Vorlon assassination attempt by season's end and would have betrayed Garibaldi in the events in Chrysalis, either giving him over to those involved with the coup or pulling the trigger herself. While we would know this, our characters would not for as much as another full season. Wow. Wow. Um, But Macaulay Bruton as Garibaldi's aide doesn't rise to that level 
of a, of a character. He's not a regular or anything like that. So it makes sense to, to just uh, tie off that that thread right then and there. Wow. This is another, like, you've blown my mind again. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm kind of glad it played out this way because I have, have trouble from just an anxiety standpoint watching when characters that I like are being actively betrayed on screen that I can see by other characters that they trust. And for that to go on for an entire season could have mm-hmm. emotionally turned me off from the show, I think. I mean, I struggle enough just with Garibaldi's actions later on in the series that I just, I don't know if I could have handled <laughs> handled this. So I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm okay with it turning out the way it did. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, given that JMS had to change things around, um, that he did a, as good a job as he could with it, laying the character's presence in enough to show that he was Garibaldi's trusted second, and then to use the character's departure to trigger, hey, there's a whole lot more coming while looking like he's tied everything up. And speaking of Jack, one brief question. When he is sitting in the interrogation room and Garibaldi is mm-hmm. you know, hobbling around him and asking him questions, I noticed that the, Shadowed the, eyes. Sound, the oh. sound quality is a little bit different. Um, and I don't know if that's just because they had poor mics in that room and couldn't do ADR, but it sounds like there's a lot more room noise. I'm just wondering if that was maybe on purpose. Is there Are there supposed to be shadows in the room with him and we're supposed to be hearing them? Or is that me just reading too much into it? Did you guys notice I that? I think that's, I personally, I think that's reading too much into it. We get that with Morden later on, right. That his shadows. Yeah. What I noticed was with the lighting, how dramatically uh, Macaulay Bruton's uh, eyes were, were shadowed so deeply compared to Garibaldi's full, whole face being revealed. And I don't know if that was just sort of dramatic, you know, this guy's hiding stuff <laughs> compared to the good guy. But that I didn't notice the sound. I noticed that the, the lighting. Chip, have you got anything else? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very good. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I am so good because I'm having that same reaction that everybody else is having now that we're in the second season. And I didn't realize how much more Babylon 5-ish Babylon 5 was going to feel once we made this transition. And this just continues that. Well Mm -hmm. said. Yep. Well, in that case, I think we are ready to wrap things up. Uh, Again, uh, don't forget to watch before our next episode, The Geometry of Shadows. Uh, Please stop in uh, at our website when you have a chance or say hello on Twitter and Tumblr. All of them, b5audioguide.com. And until next time, this is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>